in for a pretty cold old boy. Saturday night as he goes again. He's Will it be Betty Hall who make the trifecta? There's the siren. They've won just one game in the last 15. Hall to win the game for St Kilda from 38 metres out. He's kicked the goal. He's kicked the goal. The Saints have broken the back. Yeah, fine effort and what a wonderful shot there of Grant Thomas, Stewie Lowe. Nathan Burke is there as well. And Grant, you won't get the smile off his face for some considerable time, and neither you should, because they've been through hell, and now they're on their way back. And we do welcome now Grant Thomas, 72 games as a player for the Saints, 123 games as a coach. He's got the fifth highest winning percentage of any coach in St Kilda's history, and he's coached the third most finals behind only Ross Lyons, 11, and Alan Jeans' 17 finals as a coach of the Saints from 2001, the latter stages of 2001, through until 2006. Grant, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Cheers. Now, uh, if we go back to that period where you were a caretaker and obviously you were appointed for the start of, of 2002, your thoughts on Brett Ratton's six-week tenure? We know a lot's been said since the departure of Alan Richardson. He's, he's three and three about right is it probably unfair to expect more given he's only had the group for a short period of time or, or are you maybe unconvinced that, that he's the man for the job uh, look i'm i'm unconvinced only to the point that i haven't had much to do with rats and i haven't spoken to him and i wouldn't have any idea other than any other footy fan at the moment i'm a footy fan and you know, i look on and i see probably a little bit more methodology in the way they're going about their uh, games, uh, firstly, so that's a tick. I see that there's probably more consistent, um, unconditional effort, um, which is a, a tick. So there's definitely an improvement, but uh, I also uh, you know, am enthused by the facts and children are uh, saying that you know, it's a very open um, uh, process that they're going through and they're going to sort of leave no stone unturned to get the best candidate. And if the best is Rats, well, good luck to him. Um, we can all be confident that he's won a, you know, a really tough process. Uh, now, obviously, you went through his process yourself back in the day. Um, under Blighty, he saw it at 15 weeks. Then you stepped in after he basically walked into Moorabbin and five minutes later walked out in his nice yellow jumper that we remember. Um what was the process that went through there, finding out that you had the position? There wasn't really any process. It was, um, you know, after after the surprise exit of Blighty, I was uh, uh, asked to be caretaker coach. Um, uh, that was, you know, for reasons that you'd need to ask the people who made the decision at the time why that, that was the case. And uh, um, then they went through a, a process, which was, in all sincerity, a, somewhat of a facade, but... Um, um, you know, I was told way before the end of that that uh, I'd be coaching the, the club, I think, at that point in time for the next three years, I think, I, the contract was, I can't remember. 
If we look back at that period of time, I mean, yes, there was the tumultuous, the, the wooden spoon under Tim Watson in 2000, and then Malcolm Blight gets the, the flick midway through 2001. But for all intents and purposes, if we assess that five-year block, I mean, Nick Rewalt and Justin Kaczynski come to the club. Uh, through the acquisition of uh, Malcolm Blight, we probably get Aaron Hamill and Fraser Garrick and all of these sorts of people. The new step in his coach, and within three years, we play in a preliminary final. So as much as that period of time appears tumultuous, the, the building blocks, even though Blighty was originally the plan, didn't work out too badly. The club did, I guess, enjoy a, a rather significant and quick uh, improvement. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we had a mandate to uh, provide St Kilda with uh, sustainable success. We defined sustainable success as playing in finals for a decade and uh, out of that uh, uh, winning at least one, but uh, you know, one to three premierships is, uh, and that's how we we saw it. And uh, we felt that the club needed to play in finals every year for a decade to earn respect. I didn't think we were respected as an organisation, and uh, to do that, we couldn't do things how we'd always done them. There was, uh, you know, we would have got similar results. So we had to break the nexus. We had to provide some breakthrough performance and and do things dramatically different. That started with uh, readdressing the culture of the place and the environment and the people and getting it right. I think we got it pretty right. Uh, uh, I left in 2006, but in 2004, 5 and 6, we were the most winningest club in the competition. No club had won more games than us over that three-year period. Uh, We played in uh, three final series in a row for the first time, for a long time and only the second time in the club's history. Um, yeah, and then unfortunately we missed the following year, Rossi's first year, when it took, you know, the train went off the tracks for a while. Uh, but then, um, you know, to his credit and the, and the club's and players' credit, they got the train back on the track and came down close to delivering a couple of premierships. So the model couldn't have been too too wrong. Tom, we've heard in, in recent days... Um and for a long time, actually, a lot of the, the former players at the club under you, Rui, BJ and Dal and, and a few of those guys talk about the the culture, as, as you alluded to, changing the culture and, and creating a culture of success um, and sustainability within the club. How do you go about doing that when, when you walk into a club that's full of either veterans, average veterans and, and, and young kids who, who might have elite talent? But, but how do you go about changing the culture at a club like St Kilda? Well, you come up with a, an agreed set of, uh, of behaviours uh, first and values that you live and die by and you're accountable to and everything you do. Uh, you uh, eradicate the people that uh, aren't interested in abiding by those agreed values and you uh, uh, ensure that the playing group have a set of goals that's uh, in alliance with the, with the club. And if that is, that usually amounts to success uh, and if that success is defined by playing finals and giving yourself a chance to win a premiership well and everyone's in agreement with that well then say well okay well that's fine guys happy if that's what you want we will manage you and coach you and drive you towards that but you need to understand uh, the ramifications and the ramifications of that is if you're going to need to do this 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 and this and if they say, oh, well, the first three are okay, but the next two we're not 100% confident, well, we say, well, okay, you've got to do one or two things. You've either got to change your attitude towards what you need to do or you've got to reduce your standards of success. Now, of course, they always say, well, we want to keep the success. 
success, well, okay, you've got to change your standards and you've got to accept the whole five or six things we've got to do, not just three. And once you have agreement to that, it's pretty simple. Guys, you asked for it, I'm delivering it, or we're delivering it, and we're managing it towards it. And uh, and it's all-encompassing, and it starts with getting the right people involved everywhere you look, left, right, in front, above, beyond, below. Everyone is the, is the right type of person. You then got to change uh, your environment. You've got to make sure that, uh, that it is the right environment to, to live in and to work in. And then... Um, you've got to drive the right culture and the, uh, the culture of uh, expectation, the culture of success. Uh, you've got to have an environment where players can't wait to get to the club. If you can't wait to get to work, you work better, and that's a fact. We also wanted to accelerate maturity and uh, um, try and show players uh, how vulnerable they are but also how, how much they need to learn, and uh, by that we... Started and St Kilda has been credited with starting the AFL community camps and we go to places for two or three weeks and immerse ourselves in those communities. And I remember getting lining up at uh, Spencer Street Station with 60 people, 40 players and 20 staff, all with a push bike and a backpack. And we went to Warrnambool for three weeks, two weeks, and we immersed ourselves in, in hospitals, in prisons, in schools and trained three times a day and we did all that sort of stuff. That was part of it. The next step of that was to do um, high-performance uh, altitude training camps in South Africa. The next step to that was to go to London and meet some of the greatest athletes the world's ever produced and train with them for two weeks to show them how little and uh, little you are in Melbourne, Australia as a sports hero as against uh, the world. And then we took everyone to China and showed them just what it's like to live around a, a country that's got uh, 1.2 billion people and uh, uh, those sorts of things. So it was all about education and training and leadership and all those uh, fantastic things added up to change the culture of, uh, of the organisation. And as, as the head coach, how much input would you have had, you know, this time of year, um, not playing finals, obviously silly season has started in, in regards to trades and draft and all that sort of stuff. Do you then give a list of those characteristics or, or those character traits to your recruiting department and say these are the types of people we want in a club or how much input do you have in, in the type of player that, that the recruiters w- would have been looking at? No, I just want the best player. I mean, I don't care what, what background they've got. I don't care what they look like. I have a, a, a very strong belief and confidence in a long experienced career of management and uh, uh, everything else to uh, believe that if you build the right uh, environment and you have the right culture and you get the right people, um, you throw anyone into that, you can help them to be successful and change their habits and change. So I don't say, listen, I don't. I only want public school boys or I only want uh, people who haven't been in trouble who, who haven't been in trouble with the law. I don't love that perspective. I just said to Bevo, you pick the best player, Bevo. Um, that's the most important thing. Uh, we get them in this environment, everyone will end up pretty good. 
I guess a, a two-part one from from me. Uh, in regards to, you spoke a little bit about respect from from the outside. How much of it is is that, and how much of it is, I guess, how you, you you view yourself? I mean, I talk about that elusive premiership, and in the last say, or in that period from say 2001 to 2010, St Kilda did a hell of a lot right, put a hell of a lot of building blocks in place, but that was the one thing that didn't land, and it seems that. That was the one thing that probably held the club back from from maybe breaking through all of those barriers. That all it would have taken was to win one flag to to, to effectively complete that entire journey. Is it as simplistic as that? That in, in the eyes of the, the footballing public, that's the that's the true way that you you finally close that chapter. Oh, pretty much. I mean, that's one one way to look at it, and that's one vindication for what you're doing. But unless you've got very strong leaders and are able to drive through that continual performance, you'll you'll hiccup and you'll falter at the next hurdle. And, you know, firstly, the club, uh, not, not the club, but um, let's say um, uh, 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 individuals, yeah. um, you know, got rid of me and then individuals got rid of Ross Lyon. I don't think it was uh, a club. There's not St Kilda. It's people that are in charge at a point in time. And, and you know, I think I had pretty strong... Um, um, skills and management to ensure that we were consistent, and I think I've proven that. I'm damn sure Ross Hine had the same. Uh, he's proven that. Uh, but then all of a sudden, uh, you know, um, you get, don't get to have the right leadership right from the top, whether it be board, executive, and coaching, and uh, you start to falter, and you start to make knee-jerk decisions, and you start to go away from your core principles and everything else, and Instead of playing finals, you end up uh, doing a whole host of other things and pretty much we've been wallowing around since. Now, you're known for doing a few different things while in your coaching time. Um, it kind of almost changed the way that coaches worked with the media and other areas outside the club itself. Um, you are basically the first to bring in the media to the coaching box on game day. Um, was the inspiration behind that trying to bring the club and media together or give people a more look at the inside of what happens on game day or what was the inspiration in that? Oh, the inspiration was pretty much just to show the media that, that footy's not as sophisticated as you think it is and yeah, <clears throat> hopefully to show the fans that, hey, listen, you guys treat everyone within footy like gods but, um, you know, football is quite unsophisticated and it'll be a very long way behind business. But uh, that was part of the reason. The other part of it was, uh, uh, you know, to ensure that we could uh, build, you know, the right relationships with the media because for whatever reason, they uh, they didn't have a, uh, a strong uh, liking to me. I think they probably had a big party when I got the sack and that's okay. But um, So part of it was to say, well... They'd ring up and ask some questions. I think it might be Mark Robinson or whatever, and they'd talk about things. And I'd say, well, listen, if you don't believe me, come in the box and have a listen. Oh, I'd love to. And next thing you know, I'd say, well, I'm not stopping you. When do you want to come? Come along, have a, have a look, you know, shut up, but just listen. And, and they come in and they give feedback and they tell us what they think and they still talk about it to this day, but it's a lot of myths in footy. And, you know, you see a lot of camera shots of the coach's box, but if you had the opportunity to uh, actually see what happens in there, I think a lot of people would be very, very surprised about the lack of sophistication. 
The final one from from me, and I guess it's a, a two parter. I think part of what we see from from big clubs that have a bit of clout is their, I guess, relationship with the AFL. Where it's a case of if they want something from the AFL, they'll make that very clear and they'll stand their ground. And that was one of the things I most admired about you when you were coaching St Kilda was that you would stand toe to toe with the AFL on issues that mattered to the football club. And as a result, we know your relationship with Andrew Demetrio wasn't always the best, but it was always from the best interest of St Kilda. How important was that for? for you to be able to just stand there and say no no this is this is what we want to stand for for St Kilda and just to tack a little bit onto the end because I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer it I listened to the Sacked podcast where you mentioned the Whispers in the Sky game and you spoke about how a staff member rang you the following morning who'd been on the flight and said you wouldn't believe what some of these guys are saying and I know on that podcast they weren't able to dig a little bit deeper. Just out of curiosity, can you shed some light on what some of those things actually were uh, in terms of what was being said on that flight? Well, first things first, uh, I thought it was critical that we stood up to the AFL. I mean, they treated us with contempt and they treated us like a uh, uh, a bad cousin. And um, the unfortunate thing about it is when I would stand up to the AFL, I'd um, look around uh, over each shoulder for the support of uh, uh, our people <laughs> and uh, most of them would sort of run for the hills. So I was left standing there on my own to fight the battles, which is okay. I'm a big boy, I can do that, but um, being yep. used as a uh, as a uh, doormat for too long and it was time we stood up and uh, uh, demanded respect and not just through our performances, but we weren't to really stand there and take any ridicule from anyone and uh, um, I thought it was a very important part of our progress and I think our players deserved it, our fans 100% deserved it and I don't think they've had much of it in the past. Um, in relation to that incident, uh, <clears throat> I think, you know, it's been pretty well documented for a long period of time. I mean, there was an article on it, uh, Mark Parker was interviewed. <laughs> uh, you can research all that. I mean, there's no, no, no secrets there. Yeah, it was. Uh, we know the old. Um, now I know what a victory feels like. But yeah, that was a uh, very interesting, and, and I think all of us who watched it were, were in agreement. Nick, you had one. Yeah, last one from me, Tomo. Uh, obviously, you alluded, alluded to earlier about your experience with with business and in business, um, kind of helping shape how you moulded the culture at the club. Um, you obviously spent time with some some pretty um, illustrious characters in terms of footy. Um, you played under some some pretty impressive people. Uh, at the club, guys like Jezza and, and the like, um, you're at North with Dennis Pagan. Um, what people might not remember is your time as an assistant coach under Stan Alves. What can you tell us uh, about Stan and, and his time at the club? Uh, look, I wasn't <clears throat> I wasn't there for that long. Um, in fact, I wasn't anywhere for very long anywhere, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> um, look, Stan just rang me up and said, listen, you've won four premierships in a row at Warrnambool and you've got a lot of experience and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Did you have one? Uh, you yeah. I'd like, I'd, I, I, this is my first stint of coaching. I'd like someone I can trust and believe in to, to call it as they see. I know you speak your mind and I'd like you to, you know, do some, you know, mentoring to me and provide some advice. And I said, well, that's okay. You know, I'd love to do it. I'd love to help, yeah, especially if you were uh, prepared to sort of receive the, in the manner it's meant, but I won't pull any punches. And that went <clears throat> okay for a period of time. And uh, then, uh, you know, we sat down after about 14 weeks or 15 weeks and Stan asked me uh, a couple of questions, which I gave him, couple of honest answers too and 
uh, he didn't like it, and uh, so he asked me to leave. And I said, fine, that's fine. So I left. That's simple. <laughs> now, as you said there, you were... I think he uh, might have uh, adjusted some of the things I was referring to. Well, I know he did. Um, and he went on to, you know, coach for a few more years and do pretty well. Now, as you said there, you, you weren't at places for very long there, which ended up giving you a nickname by Patrick Smith. So it's, the same question you can answer is, what is your favourite breakfast cereal? Um, oh, bacon and eggs. Oh. <laughs> no. I thought I was going to go with cornflakes there, but how, how did that relationship go along with, with Patrick? Patrick? Well, Patrick Smith is the brother of brother Paul Smith, who was my headmaster at St. Beach College, which I never found this out for a while, but now... Uh, one of my good mates from school, who Father Michael Sirikoski, who became uh, a parish priest in Bentley for a long time, I asked him to come along and be our our priest uh, within the uh, club, uh, just for players to go and talk in, when they couldn't talk to anyone else. And uh, and we asked St Kilda, so we're saints, so it was good to have uh, priest here, <laughs> a ripping guy, Father Michael. And he said, told me one day, you know why you're having so many problems with Patrick Smith? And I said, no. And he said, well, his brother's brother Paul Smith. I said, you're kidding me. Because I used to torment brother Paul Smith. <laughs> and I think Patrick might have been trying to get me back. So I think it was that simple, to be frank. Well, Grant, uh, watching the Saints under you was a, a lot of fun, and, and I think you, do, you deserve a lot of credit for, ch- for helping to change the club so significantly at the time. We still chase that elusive flag, but you and, and Ross Lyon and plenty of others have given it a, a bloody good crack, and I'm sure we'll all have a smile on our face when it comes. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Thank you. Love the Saints. Go Saints.